Calling all AEC professionals. Get ready for unparalleled professional insights with detailed and original podcasts by RCAT. This is the podcast that brings you the untold stories and lessons learned behind the design and delivery of a building project. Hey, it's Sharice Lakeside, aka the CSI Kraken, and your host. Join me as we dive deep into the tales of conflict, triumph, and sheer ingenuity. Yeah, so when Serena was named for the, it was going to be named for the building, you know, we really were able to work with teams at Nike Branding and how to really infuse her influence and identity in the very public spaces. Detailed features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who spill the beans on the most complex, interesting, and downright odd building conditions they've encountered. Another challenge of the of the shuttle is actually and putting it in launch position is how you brace that seismically. It's really supported by only two pins at the base of the booster rockets. And there's a large base isolator that's underneath the shuttle that kind of prevents it from moving too much in an earthquake. The, you know, when you have 600 people or 300 people in a room, acoustically, you really need a high floor to floor so that you can have the right acoustic environment for people to be able to talk and that, that speech intelligibility is really good. Every episode unveils lessons learned and connects you to the products you need to navigate similar challenges. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Detailed today and be prepared for the unexpected on your next project. Every building has a story and we are here to tell it. Cool. <laughs> it's not that cool. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. Like we mentioned last week, this season we will be discussing ladies who influence the built environment and professions outside of architecture. On this week's episode, we will talk about Dorothy May Richardson, a Black pioneer that influenced community-led development. I'm Jessica Rogers, celebrating being 31, but still looking youthful in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, girl. Hey. I'm Lizzie Rahr, celebrating Jessica in San Francisco. <laughs> what? So sweet. I'm Nurjiri Rivas, celebrating Jessica in Houston, Texas. Yay! I love it. All right. Now for our disclaimer. The three of us are not historians, nor are we experts on this subject. We are just sharing stories about the information we find about each woman. If we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us. Leave us a comment and we will all continue learning. All right, ladies. On today's episode, we are taking a trip to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania where Dorothy May Work was born on May 30th, 1922, to parents Ralph and Mary in Fort Morgan, Colorado. Shortly after being born, her family moved to Pittsburgh, PA, close to where her father had grown up. And there she will stay for a really long time. I've never heard that last name, Work. That's interesting. I like it. Yeah, that's true. I don't think I know anyone with that name. Hmm. Who knows? Maybe her last name is just foreshadowing for what's to come. Ooh, <laughs> intrigue. 
<laughs> okay, so Dorothy graduated from Allegheny High School in 1940. This high school is listed in the National Register of Historic Places. Ooh, cool. I need to look up pictures of this high school. Yeah. Yeah, you should. Also around that time, she got married to Lewis Richardson, who worked on railways before he enlisted in the Air Force during World War II in 1942. Oh, wow. She got married real young. 18? That's a little early. Yeah, that is young. But also maybe not that surprising in 1940, to be honest. I guess. Yeah, I think it was young, too. But honestly, finding information on her personal life was a little difficult. Even finding out her birthday was tricky. Was it May 30th? Was she born on May 3rd? In October? So. Anyway, from what I gathered, homegirl graduated, she got married, she had a son. His name, we also am not 100% sure on. So for now, what we do know is that she got married and she has a kid. Gotcha. All right, so let's get to the good stuff. Okay, let's go. Yes, let's. So Dorothy, you know, like I said, she stayed in Pittsburgh for a long time. While there, she got really involved in the community. She was really interested in preserving the houses in her neighborhood. That's really nice. I like her already. She also saw home ownership as something to be really important. In general, she was just an advocate for safe, quality, and affordable housing. Yeah, owning a home is a big deal. That's interesting that she was advocating for these things. I'm excited to learn what she did next. Yeah, I agree. I like the direction she started in, and I want to know more. Okay, so let's take this moment to, like, set the scene. Pittsburgh, home of the Steelers. So, yeah, it produced the football team, but it was also a major manufacturer for steel, especially during World War II. Do you know what else Pittsburgh was known for? Smoke. It was known as the Smoke City. Because with all the manufacturing companies, the city was constantly filled with smoke. Can you imagine those times without all the regulations we have today? How do people breathe? It makes me think of what our grandkids will say about us. Like, whoa, you guys were using all that gasoline willy-nilly and plastic in the oceans. What were you thinking? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> it's wild to think about factories without the air quality standards of today. And we'll talk more about air quality in a future episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I found really interesting in my research of the city is that this smoke affected the whole city. Right. And besides being known as the smoke city, it was also known as hell with the lid off. <laughs> wow. That name doesn't really make you want to plan a visit, does it? Maybe it does. It sounds like an adventure. Ooh. I mean, maybe not at that time. But I mean, OK, so spoiler alert, the city gets better without the smoke and stuff like you can breathe there <laughs> oh, really? and stuff. Yeah. It's not the sa exactly oh, so the call. same as it was in 1940. <laughs> <laughs> Shocker. No. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Um, but anyway, I just thought it was important for us to bring this up because when we talk about environmental or societal consequences on a city, we have to consider how these consequences will affect more of those that live in underrepresented communities, i.e. people of color and people that are living in poor or low-income neighborhoods. Oh, that's a really good point, Jessica. 
Yes. So let's keep that in mind as I continue with the story. So anyway, there's smoke around the city and bam, it's the 1960s. Oh, wait, we fast forward to the 60s. I thought we were in the 40s. Yeah. Nope. Yep. Sound effects because there's a time jump. Uh, <laughs> That's what that was? <laughs> um, yeah. So Dorothy's husband goes off to war and Dorothy is taking care of her kid, et cetera, et cetera. Life, life, life. Does her husband come back? Um, We don't know. Uh, there isn't a lot of information out there. I did find his tombstone. But the grass was covering the year that he died. Uh, it did say April. Um, How convenient. But yeah, like I, yeah, right, like right there. Like I, all I knew was the year. But anyway, like I mentioned earlier, I think historians were more interested in her accomplishments and not really her personal life. So that's why we go to what really was happening with Dorothy, Pittsburgh, and the US for that matter. So we are back in the 60s. World War II is over. Her husband? Eh, not sure. Her kid? I don't know, playing around somewhere. But what we do know was what was happening in the 60s. The civil rights movement. Yes. Okay. So now for a brief pause to learn more about the institutional racism reflected on the built environment during this time. We are talking about gentrification, redlining, and urban renewal, folks. So let's start with urban renewal. The urban renewal movement took place during the 1960s. The urban renewal movement was when several low-income neighborhoods were being torn down, forcing the residents to move into public housing. As we can imagine, the majority of the residents of these communities were underrepresented people. To take it a step further, urban renewal movement can isolate neighborhoods, devalue land and property, which in turn becomes more of a problem in underrepresented neighborhoods and communities. Yes. So in some instances, it would be in the interest of landowners to let properties become dilapidated to then sell to big corporations. Let me guess. One of those neighborhoods was the one that Dorothy lived in. Yep, you guessed it. Houses in her neighborhood were just in bad conditions. She describes in this quote, I could see houses starting to lean, windows rotting away. Sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I have a feeling that Dorothy didn't just sit around and do nothing, right? Mm. Well, of course. She later goes on to say in that same quote, the solution was not to tear down the whole neighborhood and move everybody into public housing. The solution was to fix the houses. Obviously. So what did she do? She formed a group called Citizens Against Slum Housing, a.k.a. Cash. Their mission was to ensure access to affordable and safe housing. The plan was to clean up 24 houses. She spoke to the landlord and he gave her group the sprays, the equipment to kill the rats and the cockroaches. Ugh, rats and cockroaches. But that's really interesting. So she didn't own the properties. This was kind of like pro bono services for the landlord. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very selfless. I mean, even if the landlord was giving her the supplies, she's taking the time and mobilizing people to help out. Right. She's providing labor for free. Yeah, it was basically that. She worked with the landlord to help maintain the houses. All she asked for was the supplies and I guess the permission to fix the houses. I really like this initiative. Yeah, well, after working on five houses... 
the landlord stopped cooperating. The supplies hadn't run out and the landlord just stopped. That was fast. Yeah. But why did the landlord want to stop cooperating? I mean, isn't it sort of to their benefit to not have to pay someone to do the work or do it themselves? Well, I bet the landlord could get more money if they tore it down than from rent. And he wasn't in the business of helping people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And to Norgidi's point, there was that. But, you know, also racism and perhaps some cost. The landlords were responsible for providing the supplies to the group, remember? Mm -hmm. And I think the idea of trying to accommodate a black group led by black women. Well, like I said, it was the 60s. So we'll leave it at that. Okay. So clearly working with the landlord wasn't working. It was time to take it up a notch. It was time to take this to the elected officials. Yeah, take it to the man. Or I guess the other man. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the other man. <laughs> so Dorothy gathered her neighbors, a.k.a. her group, a.k.a. they were also all women, by the way. Woo! Nice. They organized and they spoke to city bankers. They were able to enlist 16 financial institutions to issue loans at high risk so that black people could purchase homes and repair housing in these black communities. Yay that they were able to purchase homes. But was it cash who was purchasing the homes to become good landlords? Or was it individual families in the community purchasing the homes? It was the individual families that were purchasing the homes. Gotcha. The organization Cash was just the catalyst group that convinced the banks to issue the loans. Okay, let's back up. What do you mean higher risk? So now, kids, another lesson on institutional racism in the built environment. This time, we will talk about redlining. Redlining is the systematic denial of various services or goods by federal government agencies, local governments, or the private sector, either directly or through the selective raising of prices. They would also deny property loans to people based on their race, or if they did issue a loan, it would be at a much higher interest rate or have a higher deposit because they believed it to be a higher risk to the bank. Uh. Yeah. So along with the poor housing conditions, Black residents had to face discrimination in actually purchasing property. The urban renewal movement and redlining made neighborhoods more unstable. Dorothy believed that community and neighborhoods can help create a sense of identity to its residents. By granting residents home ownership, residents can have a sense of pride and make a neighborhood and in turn the city more sustainable. Yeah, I think when you have an investment in something, you take more pride in it and the community around you in turn. And especially with home ownership, since the neighborhood can affect the value of your investment. Mm -hmm. But I have a feeling institutions back in those days were not interested in helping create safe, sustainable black communities. True. Exactly. Like we were mentioning earlier, things like redlining and urban renewal were going rampant. The white man loan officer was skeptical to give black families the opportunity to live the American dream. Yeah. So organizations like Dorothy's must have been super important so that they could help black families own property. Yeah, and that's what makes Dorothy's group Cash so revolutionary for that time. So much so that in 1968, Cash, 
the group, not Cash Money Records, became (laughs) the Neighborhood Housing Service, NHS. So the success of Cash was able to raise $750,000 in grants. The now NHS basically was the expanded version of Cash. And they were able to secure $1 million to create more home ownership opportunities and home repairs. And this model for banks was then replicated in 300 cities. Wow, that's amazing. But wait, I got a little lost. The NHS was raising money. What did they do with it? Did they give it to people through private loans or give it away to those in need of home ownership? So basically, the money that they were raising, they utilized it as grants to give to the families to help purchase homes and or to make repairs to the homes. That's really wonderful. Another thing that happened in 1968 was the Fair Housing Act. I know this from researching Catherine Bauer. Future episode alert! As explained by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, The 1968 Act expanded on previous acts and prohibited discrimination concerning the sale, rental, and financing of housing based on race, religion, national origin, sex, and as amended, handicap, and family status. The Title VIII of the Act is also known as the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Yes, so shortly after the Fair Housing Act, the NHS became involved with the Federal Home Loan Bank, FHLB. So for those that don't know, the Federal Home Loan Banks, FHL Banks, or FHL Bank System, are 11 U.S. government-sponsored banks that provide liquidity to the members of financial institutions to support housing finance and community investment. Yes. So the investment model of having banks provide grants and aid to the underrepresented communities that wanted to purchase homes became bigger. In 1978, it went all the way to Congress, where it became known as the Neighborhood Reinvestment Corporation, known today as NeighborWorks America. Whoa. So Dorothy's program became a national staple. That's so cool. Yeah. She took it to the Bigger other man. (laughs) The biggest man. (laughs) The biggest man. (laughs) The Neighborhood Reinvestment Corps, or NeighborWorks, was a Congress-charted nonprofit organization that promoted reinvesting into older neighborhoods by local banks that worked with community residents and local governments. So did NeighborWorks America help people of all colors and races, or was it focused on only Black communities? I mean, Pittsburgh was not doing good all around, right? If it was considered hell without a lid and smoke city. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So in my research, I actually came across this tidbit about Dorothy and her group. So Dorothy was interested in helping people that just wanted to purchase a home, set up roots, improve their community. And although the focus might have been on people of color, The overall goal was to help people in less fortunate circumstances, which also means poor white people, too. So the story that I came across was of a now tourist staple in Pittsburgh, Randy Land. Isn't that the place that Gabby visited when she went to Pittsburgh? Yeah. Okay, so Randy Land 
is now known as this colorful art museum owned by, you guessed it, Randy. (laughs) Randy, no last name. So Randy, in this article that I read, um, recalls how Dorothy and her group helped him purchase the then home almost 50 years ago. He says that at the time he was casted off by others throughout his life for being considered, in quotes, white trash. But Dorothy and the NHS treated him like family. And now look at what that house has become. It's Randyland. That's so cool. I love that they were able to help him acquire the house and that he's been able to make it into such an iconic place to visit. Also, the fact that a place Dorothy helped purchase is still around and like kind of a place you can visit. That's really cool. Yeah, this is going on the She Builds Arc Ventures list. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So a friend of the show, Gabriela, a.k.a. also my roommate, like we mentioned earlier, she actually went to Pittsburgh and she visited Randy Lynn and she said it was really cool. But due to COVID, she wasn't allowed to go inside. But it might be different now, depending on the COVID precautions. But yeah. Yeah. The photos she sent, even from the outside, looked great. I can't wait to visit Randyland. Yeah, we all will. Yeah. So it's so great to think of this place that we can visit. It wouldn't be there if it wasn't for Dorothy and her group. So it kind of shows that Dorothy's work had a lasting legacy, even if it's like you look at Congress and you're like, yeah, okay, the work that they're doing. But like you can actually physically see Randy Land and think of Dorothy. Yeah. So in April 1991, at the age of 68, due to kidney failure, Dorothy passed away at the Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh, man, that's so sad. I mean, I know that we talk about ladies that have passed away on this show, but whenever they've passed away in our lifetime, it feels so close to us. Like I mourn them more and it makes me think about like, are they not history or are we part of history? Whoa. Whoa. That's deep right there. (laughs) Is it? Maybe a little. I mean, it is crazy to think that like these people that we now look at as like historical or like making history. We were walking the same earth while they were still living. Right. That's nuts. You know. But okay, let's talk about how Dorothy lived in Pittsburgh like her whole life. You weren't kidding. I told you. Yep, she never left her neighborhood. And when they asked why'd she stay, Dorothy would say, I went to school there. I got married there. All of my friends are there. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Sometimes it's just the right place for you. It's known, it's comfortable. All your people are there. Why leave? Yeah, Mm -hmm. ain't nothing wrong. Ain't nothing wrong with that. (laughs) You don't know that song? Nope. Oh, really? Nope. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I'll send it to you later. <laughs> okay. But anyway, this lady was just so cool. I like this idea of a grassroots type of change. This woman had no experience in urban design or finances. She literally just gathered some homegirls to create change in her neighborhood. She had the courage to talk to banks to help her community. And then this effort goes all the way to Congress? Yeah, 
It's really amazing. I love how determined she was and that she was just inspired to help out her own neighborhood. And then it became such a big thing because of her efforts. Yeah, what an inspiration. She definitely left this world a little better than she found it. Yep. And speaking of, NeighborWorks has an award honoring Our Lady Dorothy May. Hey, hey. This annual award recognizes outstanding contributions by dedicated community leaders. And every year, it looks like they select about five nominees, which also brings me to the second half of our episode, The Carrioted. Nordry, can you remind the people of who or what a carrioted is? Sure thing, Chickawang. A carrioted is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. Each episode, we'll choose a carrioted, a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through their work, and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. So... Our carrioted for this week's episode is <laughs> Evelyn Harrison. <laughs> so Evelyn was one of the 2020 Dorothy Richardson Award honorees. Nice. Yes. So Evelyn lives in Washington, D.C. That is not why I chose her. But sure. Uh, I mean, we could be friends now. But anyway, Evelyn, when she found out that there were plans to sell her apartment building, she made change happen. Yeah, she did. Yeah, where's this going? (laughs) Okay, so similar to the 60s, things like gentrification, they are still a common thing in the U.S. And D.C. is no different. However, D.C. has a law that if an apartment building goes up for sale, the tenants have the right to purchase option, known as the District of Columbia's Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act. So in order to execute this, the building needed to form a tenants association. So Evelyn gathered 200 signatures from her neighbors and formed an association saving their apartment building. Oh, wow. That's super awesome. Yeah, good for her. Yes. Between the association that she helped create And the development manager that they partnered with, they were able to get building upgrades such as an upgraded laundry facility, a playground, and even a space where they can host community events. That's so great. I like that not only did they save the building from being sold and demolished, they also worked to improve it and to create more community-based living spaces. Exactly. And that proves Dorothy May's point about the pride in ownership and people creating their own neighborhoods based on their needs and interests because they're invested in the well-being of the community. What a great urban design case study. Yeah. Okay. so now listen to this quote for Evelyn herself. I have more energy than I thought I had, and I'm pretty good at convincing people. Taking this on at Worthington Woods made me feel good that I was doing something not just for myself, but for this community. I have noticed some people have a different attitude, that they feel like they're involved, like they are a part of things. That definitely sounds like Dorothy and how she felt about her community. I can see all the connections that are happening between them. Yeah, Jessica, you should look her up. Like, like, actually. You're going to become friends. Yeah, invite her to coffee. Ask her all about that. Yeah, that's a good point. I I wonder if she has an Instagram. All right. 
So before we sign off, we want to give thanks to CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer. And most of all, thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning more about Dorothy May and Evelyn, along with our banter, and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, thank you. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your landlords, your banks. Give us five stars on iTunes. Write us a review. This will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. We're excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com. Or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at SheBuildsPodcast and on Twitter at SheBuildsPod. Until then, bye! 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 You know that's why the football team is named the Steelers, right? Yes. Okay. Duh. I just, that's why she said <laughs> but, it. I mean, no, but the I way, mean, she, yeah, the way she said it was like a little bit like it could have been going the other way. And I was like, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I definitely knew that. Okay. But I later, I found out that they not only produce steel, though, they produce coal and I think oil. They produced a lot of stuff, but steel was their main, main thing. Hey, designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if, if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. <laughs> The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today.